0: Okay. Next is, Laura is going to share some things about, uh, just as reminders for format, when we're doing the teaching about uh, discussion, making comments and questions.
1: Now to talk about something very mundane. Um, when we, uh, at when David's giving the message and you have a question, just wanted to know if you could first just raise your hand and then wait for a microphone or grab a microphone and then ask a question as much as you can rather than say just, I mean, a comment's okay, but a question's better because then he can answer it. Um, Have a scripture ready. If you're asking about a particular reference, be nice to quote that scripture. And then if you have a question that relates to the topic at hand, that's always a good thing. And then lastly, (laughs) if you can stay away from comments that don't pertain at all to what is being discussed, that will keep things flowing. Okay? Thanks.
0: All right. Yes, the microphones should be on and stay on. So if you have one next to you, just push the button at the bottom once, a green light should come on on the little screen. Just leave, leave it in that state. Okay. Let's do this. All right, so the topic for this morning, we're changing gears, starting a new discussion. This one's going to be about our relationship to sin. So a little bit intense. We'll see how this goes. Uh, What I mean by that is specifically what is it that we are supposed to believe about about sin? In that, how much sin are we still in? How much can we repent of? And what does it mean for how you live your life, basically, on a daily basis? So, that's what we're discussing. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. We will start there. The first thing we're going to do is read about what it was like for us to be in sin before we knew Christ or before we were saved. And Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, summarizes that very well. So Ephesians 2, verse 1. It says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Sum it up, he says we were dead in trespasses and sins. We walked according to and then he gives the pattern of this world and then according to basically the devil. Which in fewer words is saying that we walked the way that the devil does. Basically is the way of stating that simply. And then the third thing he says is we conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Then he states that our nature was as a child of wrath. So that's what it was like before we knew Christ. And this is a very important point, because if anyone is going to be motivated to be saved, they have to know how deeply unsaved they are first, no matter how many good works that they've done. So it doesn't matter how righteous you think you are. You have to know you are really bad before you know Christ. All have sinned. sinned. Right. So that's what Paul is emphasizing there in Ephesians 2. Now, what we're going to focus on here is what it means when Paul says that we walked or conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh and then fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, so what, what that means. Okay, so the point we're going over for that is that we walked in the desires of the fallen mind and body. If you look at Colossians chapter 1 which is the next place we're going to in verse 21 Colossians 1 verse 21. He says you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled. We were enemies of God in our minds by wicked works, which is basically his way of saying we were acting as enemies of God because we were thinking Like enemies of God. Because of our sins. Our wicked works. We were thinking like enemies. We walked as enemies. And we fulfilled the wants. Or the lusts of the flesh. And of the mind. Which tells us that when we are born into this world. The body that you were born with. And the mind that you were born with. Had. A sinful nature. And that nature resulted in causing you to think at enmity with God. So you you acted as an enemy of God with that mind and body. And that tells you that the desires that your mind and body had that you were born with were ungodly desires. And that's why we have to be trained, and it starts with our parents, to try to do right because we naturally do wrong. So you're born with this propensity to do wrong. And that is what we're born with. Another good passage to look at is Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, which says, verses 7 and 8 of Romans 8 says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, another way of saying to be an enemy of God, for it is not subject or not submitted to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The carnal mind, that Greek word for carnal basically means fleshly. It is the where we get the word meat from, basically. So thinking fleshly makes you an enemy of God, and it, the flesh will never be submitted to the law of God. It says it cannot be submitted to the law of God. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, where we got this nature from is what Romans 5 answers and says that Adam in his sin ultimately gave us this fallen nature of the mind and body. So when in Genesis, when God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. There's two things that happened. Romans 5 says the first is, uh, or he actually describes that whole process as sin and death, judgment and condemnation. One thing that happened is that mankind now had to experience physical death, which started with the aging process. So Adam and Eve had no aging, no weakness or infirmity or dysfunction of the body before sin. But once they sin. Their body starts slowly dying, and all of us will eventually die because of that. Second thing was condemnation. That's the spiritual death, that because of the sinfulness that we took on in the mind and body, and that sinfulness that we chose to live in, that made us condemned by nature. That's why Ephesians 2 says we are by nature children of wrath, which means we were under God's wrath, and as a result, we would have to be condemned. And judged for it. We got that from Adam. To sin, as Ephesians 2 says, is to do the desires or to act on the desires of the body and of the mind. If you look at Galatians 5, starting in verse 19, it says, The works of the flesh are evident. And then it lists all these sins. He calls those things works of the flesh. Romans 8 verse 13, Romans 8 verse 13 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's the carnal mind. But if by the spirit, he says, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what we're putting to death are the deeds of the body. So the body, meaning the fallen and sinful body and with it the mind that you were born with, has this bend to do what is sinful. And he says the purpose of having the spirit is to put to death the deeds of the body. So that's what we were or what we need to know about who we were before we knew Christ or before we were born again. Now that we know Christ, if we're saved, we know that our sins are forgiven. There's plenty of scriptures that talk about that. And we know we're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Old things have passed away, all things have become new. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. So what does it mean that we're a new creation? What exactly does that look like? So go to uh, Ezekiel thirty six. This is where we read about the solution that God gave us for the mind and body, the the fallen mind and body that we were born with. So if we start in this case, we're just going to read. Well, we'll start in verse 26, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So we're going to focus on verse 27 here because he sums it up really well. I will put my spirit within you. So the new spirit that God gave you, the one that has been added to you, Romans 8 also comments on this, was the Holy Spirit, God's spirit. So when God gave you his spirit, he says the result of that would be that he would cause you to walk in his statutes. You would keep his judgments and do them. So Ezekiel 36, 27, especially is a great verse to use to state the purpose of God giving you the Holy Spirit. This is when you were born again, when you got saved, the Bible says that you were given the spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans eight talks about. The purpose of that was so that you would be caused to be obedient. That's the point. God did not give the Holy Spirit to seal you for redemption so you could live the same life you always did in hopes of making it to heaven. That wasn't the point. The point was to cause you to be obedient. The Holy Spirit was meant to be the power that you needed to obey God. Do you have a question, comment, microphone? Can we hand that microphone to Kevin? Yep. I think it's interesting that you know, God... I think it's interesting
2: that God, you know, set up the world with Adam and Eve. They sinned. That sin went forward to us. But he still, I believe, writes the right things on our hearts when we're born. You know, we know that when we do wrong, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But it isn't until we get born again that we are equipped to fight that other urge. We still know in our hearts what's right because we have a conscience. But the Holy Spirit is the one that allows us to achieve that level of
0: Mm -hmm.
2: oneness with God.
0: Great point. Yeah. There is a uh, passage in Genesis. This is a side note, but it's it's relevant and it's important to keep this in mind. That in Genesis, when Cain, uh, before Cain killed his brother Abel, God told Cain that sin lies at the door. It's desires for you, but you should rule over it. He gave Cain a choice. So this is, this is before anyone had ever had the capacity to be saved or born again. He told Cain, you still have the choice to say no to sin, if you choose to. When the Holy Spirit comes along, what that does is it adds the power of God to make it way, way easier to say no to sin. But before you're saved, you still have the choice, and that's what makes us rightly condemnable. Because it's still our choice. We still choose to sin before we know Christ. And we choose to sin after we know Christ. The point of the spirit is to add the power that you need to be able to make that choice a whole lot easier. So it's kind of enjoyable. Yes. that's The idea is that it should become enjoyable. Right? We should want to do what is right. And we should be happy about doing what is right. Amen? Okay. So... That's where the Holy Spirit's given to cause you to walk in his statutes and his judgments or to be obedient to him. Let's go back to Romans 8. We will look at verse 9, starting there. Romans 8, verse 9. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If you look at the end of Romans 7, one of the last things he says in verse 24 is, "O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He, he's posing that as the problem. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Then he thanks God, stating that God is ultimately the solution. Verse 2 of 8, he says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Then skip down to the last verse we read just now, verse 11. He says that the, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So he states the problem is you have a body of death. He says the solution is the Holy Spirit gives life to your mortal body. So what should that result in? That's the big question. And if you look at verse 9, this is important, or 10, excuse me. This is important because he's talking to believers He says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. So when you got saved, your body didn't change. Your body is still fallen. And it's going to stay that way. But God giving you the Holy Spirit gives you life so that you can walk in righteousness. That's the point. So God is not going to give us a new body until Christ returns. That's what scripture says. That's when we'll receive a glorified body until that day, your body is still going to be fallen. But to make sure that you can put to death the deeds of the body or to make sure that you can stop sinning with your body, he gives you the spirit. So you have the power, the greater power, I should say to do that. And if we believe that we have the spirit and if we believe that the spirit gives us life so we can walk in righteousness, then that means if our faith is real and it's true, then we would be walking in righteousness because the Holy Spirit's way, 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 way more powerful than any lust of the flesh. Amen? So if you believe that you have the power of the Spirit of God, then that means you believe that that power is greater than any lust or temptation of the flesh. Part of what this proves to us, being that we still have a fallen body, is that God's spirit is more powerful than the flesh. And that's a lesson we have to learn. We have to face temptations and overcome them by the power of the spirit. So we learn that God's spirit is greater. It is more powerful. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world, like First John says. And that's part of how we learn obedience, because if you are only obeying when things are easy, then that's not really obedience at that point. But when you're facing resistance to the spirit and you believe in the power of God and you overcome that temptation or that resistance, that's learning obedience. So God has let us remain in a fallen body, at least for a time, so we can learn obedience. It's actually part of one way that we learn discipline as well. Like Christ, had to. like Christ had to. Yeah. The Bible says he was tempted in all points as we are. So Christ experienced every temptation you do, and he faced it, and he overcame it. Because he, applied. he applied, yes, the power. <laughs> Laura.
1: So is the Holy Spirit automatically active or operative as soon as we receive the Holy Spirit, or is there... Something we do that makes it operative or working.
0: Do you want to make a comment first? Jake. Yeah.
3: So, um, yes, but no, <laughs> I believe. Um, yes, you have the Holy Spirit, so you have the power. However, you have to put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, like it says in Colossians 3.10. And so you have a part to play, and it's not an, a switch that automatically happens, and you still have a fallen mind, like you was saying, in a fallen body that needs to be renewed. And the power is given you to do that.
0: Yes. And no. <laughs> no I'm kidding. Um, so... <laughs> so... Uh, What Jacob said is accurate. Basically, when you receive the Holy Spirit for the first time when you get saved, the first thing that happens is conviction. And that's what begins to produce repentance in a person. So before you're saved, most of the time, we don't really care that we sin. We just have given ourselves to it. We don't care. There's not a lot of conviction. When the Holy Spirit enters a person, now they start being convicted. They start feeling bad about sin. And that's a good sign. If you don't feel bad about sinning, then we have a problem. If you do feel bad about sinning, that means, according to Romans, Paul talks about that in 6 and 7 of Romans, that's a sign that you have the convictions of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 16 that when the the Spirit of God, when He comes, the first thing He will do, He says, is He will convict the world of sin. John 16. I don't remember the exact verse, but you can find it. He will convict the world of sin. So one of the, the first thing that the Holy Spirit wants to do is to convict of sin. So you should expect when you're a member of the world still and the Holy Spirit enters your life, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to be convicted of sin. So before you know any scripture, before you're involved in the fellowship of the church, before you know anything, you have at least the conviction of the Spirit. Part of what that does is it shows you sin or I should say it highlights it to you. It makes you feel this remorse about it, which helps motivate you to repent. That's why 2 Corinthians in 7, verse 10, says godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Who gives the godly sorrow? The Holy Spirit. That's the conviction. Which leads to repentance and salvation. So that conviction is good. That's a good sign. After you're convicted together with the convictions of the spirit, you have the word and the Bible calls that the law of God. And the Bible says that the law highlights or intensifies the sinfulness of sin. Because when you see God's word saying something is wrong, the Holy spirit uses that to convict you. So when a person starts reading the Bible After they get saved and they're convicted, first thing that's going to happen is they're going to read about everything the Bible says is wrong or everything it says is right. And they're going to realize they don't measure up. They're not being obedient. And that's meant to convict you. And that's a godly sorrow that is meant to produce repentance. So we have that going for us. We know. Second thing, which Jacob started talking about, is renewing your mind. And that actually gets into what we're going to talk about next, which is how you put on the new, new man. Excuse me. Because how you put on the new man requires renewing your mind. So we'll get to that next. Did somebody have an additional comment or question that I missed? Did somebody have? Did you? Or RJ did? Yeah. Okay.
4: I had a comment, yeah. and that was, uh, before Christ, I didn't know I was sinning. I didn't even know. I was living in the world the way that the world taught me to live in the world. Mm-hmm. And then when I started following Christ, that's when I became convicted. Yeah. Right away. Yep. yep. But that's
2: what the law is all about from the Old Testament. It shows us what sin is. It, we have to be aware of it, obviously. Yep. But quick, quick story. I read this week about how uh, a little girl saw this lamb and thought how white and beautiful it was. And then it snowed and the lamb came out of the barn and looked pretty not so white. You know, we see ourselves as that white lamb. But God's creation shows us that there's a, a, a different level of purity mm-hmm. that we don't see.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Romans 7 says, I, had not, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. I would not have known sin except by the law, is what it says. So we need God's law and the convictions of the spirit for that purpose to face that.
3: I just had a quick question about Romans 8, verse 10, when it says, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit gives you life, and this is my question, because the wages of sin is death, and then the Spirit causes you to obey the Word. And so, is that basically the less you sin, the more you live?
0: Uh. (laughs) Okay. Can you restate that? You the, sin. The less you sin, the more you live. What do you mean by that? Tell me more.
3: Like the less you sin, the more of your mortal body will be preserved.
0: Oh yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Um, there's a there's there's proverbs. One proverb says, "He who pursues evil pursues it to his own death." There's another proverb that says, "The he who is cruel troubles his own flesh." Uh, proverbs four says that if you Keep the word and the law of your father and mother and wisdom close to you that it will give you life, uh, health and life to your flesh. So when you walk in righteousness, you'll live longer. But if you pursue sin, you pursue it to the decay of your own flesh. So you actually die faster the more sin you have in your life. And that is still true for believers, physically speaking, because the body is dead because of sin. So as a believer, your body is still fallen. So the more that you choose to sin, the more you're going to have effects of bad health in your body. Because you decay faster the more that you sin. The more you walk in repentance and righteousness, the healthier you'll be. This is all over scripture.
3: Yeah. So that's my question. Is that So the more you live in righteousness, the less you sin, meaning the more you live. So is that yes. what the verse is talking about? Or is there another...
0: Well, that specific verse, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, its point is that you know that the Spirit is giving you life because you're walking in righteousness. So if you're walking in righteousness, that is the Spirit giving you life. That's what it means. And of course, part of having life in your mortal body is living longer as well, being in better health. And that's what Proverbs gets at and Psalms and things like that. So. But we can
2: have a short life in Christ, and it's incredibly productive. It feels good. That we as have well. A really, the long life, and it's just miserable mm-hmm. because we spend so much of our time not well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, that is true. Okay, we'll move on here. So so far, just before we move on to putting on the new man, to summarize. As believers, or excuse me, while unbelievers, we were born with a fallen mind and body, and we did the desires of the fallen mind and body. In Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit gives us the power to walk in righteousness. And in Christ, we still have a fallen mind and body, but it offers us a solution. That's what putting on the new man is. And this is where we get into what it means to renew the mind. Like I said, your body is going to stay fallen, but your mind can be renewed. Your mind can be transformed, it can be reshaped, reconditioned, recalibrated. That's what the word is for. This is why you need the word. The mind can be renewed with learning the word and letting it correct your thinking. There's a verse in 1 John 2 verse 1 that says, These things I have written to you so that you may not sin. So why do we have what is written? Why do we have the Bible? So that we may not sin. The point of the Bible is not so that you can read it to fulfill a religious obligation to be a good Christian. The point of Scripture is, is to let it confront where your thinking is wrong, correct you, and empower you by knowing what is right to walk in what is right. That's the point. To help you stop sinning. That's what God wants to do in your life with the word. Again, that's 1 John 2 verse 1. These things I've written to you so that you may not sin. With the power of the spirit living in us, and the power of the word to renew our thinking, we can repent from all sin. Think about it this way. If you can repent from one thing, you can repent from everything. Because if there's, if there's any one sin that you can face, that you can correct and overcome, you can apply that same discipline to every single other sin you face in your life. And there's plenty of other scriptures we could talk about to get into this, which I won't get into all of them right now, but I'll just give you one. Just for the sake of keeping it in your mind. In I'll use my favorite. First Thessalonians five, verse 23. Says, May the God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. That means kept blameless. Like I said, there's plenty of other ones that we could get into, but if the word was given to help you to stop sinning and to empower you to repent, then that means we're to use the word to empower that repentance. You face a sin in your life that you should cease. You bring that to God, you confess it, you bring it to the word, and you let the word correct your thinking, and that will help you repent, and we have to stay in the word to keep that process going and that needs to be a focus because again remember Ezekiel 36 27 I will put my spirit within you and cause you to what walk in my statutes and my judgments to do them that's the point he gives you the spirit for the power to repent and obey he gives you the word so you know how to repent and obey I'll say that again. He gives you the spirit so you have the power to repent and obey. And he gives you the word so you know how to repent and obey. And you need both. And that's why he gives this to us. It's an amazing gift. While we are learning to repent and obey God, we will make mistakes. If you look at 1 John 2, I just uh, quoted verse 1. You look at verse 2. It says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. So it says, I've written to you to help you stop sinning. If you do, remember you have an advocate with the Father. Your sins are appeased for or they're, they're atoned for. You're forgiven. So the action step we should take after that would be to not dwell in regret because we're forgiven and there's no condemnation. Instead, we should be motivated to repent, to press on, and to correct our ways. And God can use sin as an advantage to you to help you repent. And uh, this is actually, there's plenty of examples of this in Scripture, but when you look at the conviction of sin, back to that point, the Holy Spirit convicts you when you sin. And it says that produces this godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So if you sin and you take that godly sorrow and it turns into motivation to repent, then it resulted in something good. But if you stay in regret and your ways are never amended, things are never changed, then it says that will produce death. The Bible calls that the sorrow of the world. It's a guilt that never affects any change. That's the sorrow of the world. If you sin, if you make a mistake, it results in sorrow leading to repentance. Praise God for that. But if it's worldly sorrow that keeps you in guilt and regret, and it never affects any change, that will produce death. And that we should want to avoid. So we we can be thankful for the fact that we make mistakes for this reason, if you let it cause you to repent. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that's why, and I love this verse so much when you know it this way, Romans 8, 28, where it says, God works all things together for good to those who love him are the called according to his purpose. When it says he works all things together for good to those who love him, that's not talking about a gushy love feeling. It doesn't say he works everything together for good if you feel lovey-dovey in your heart for God. Okay. Love is an action word. The Bible says we love him if we keep his commandments. Jesus himself, John 14, verse 21. He who loves me will keep my word. He who loves me will keep my commandments. Verse 23, he says. So read Romans eight twenty eight this way. God works all things together for good to those who love him by keeping his commandments. And those who are called according to his purpose. So, When you sin, when you make a mistake, when evil or bad things happen, if you maintain repentance and obedience and you continue to grow in repentance and obedience, that's when God can work it out together for good. But if you want everything to work out together for good, but your ways never change, you never grow in repentance and obedience, then it's not going to lead to good because that's not loving God. If there isn't repentance, we love God through growing in repentance and obedience so without that, we're not going to see things work together for good. But if you do grow in repentance and obedience, he will work everything together for good. And you will never have to regret a single thing. Because it produced godly sorrow, leading to repentance, and thus greater salvation. Amen?
2: That's the do-it-yourself part of a relationship with God.
0: Yeah, we and have we action have to, to take. The
2: to continue to get to mm-hmm.
0: Yep, and we need the word and the spirit to do that. You can't do it by yourself. You can't just try really hard to repent and obey. Better, you need the word for that, which gets into what we talked about last week about the power of your words. You have to meditate on the word to renew your mind and help that obedience.
3: Yes. What is the verse? Scholars sorrow
0: leads to repentance. Second Corinthians seven ten. Oh. Yep. Remember Romans 8, 1, too. That's a good one. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not going to be condemned anymore. So you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to linger and dwell in regret. If you do, you stay in that guilty conscience that produces death. That's evil. That will hurt you. That's the sorrow of the world. Did you have something to say, Dave, back there?
5: Well, kind of back to Thessalonians 5, what does it mean to sanctify?
0: To sanctify, there's two definitions. One is to make holy or make consecrated. The second is to set apart. So if you put those two together, to be sanctified basically means to be set apart from the world and made holy. There's another verse in... uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, I believe it's verse 4, that says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. It is God's will for your life that you are sanctified. Set apart and made holy. Then it says, action steps, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, And then it says that each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust, Like the Gentiles who do not know God.
1: So, is that a one time deal? We are sanctified, or is that a lifelong process?
0: There's a sense of both. Because when you got saved, you were once set apart. And 1 Peter 2, verse 9, expresses that because it says that you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood and a holy nation to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light that called you out that called out that phrase in greek is actually where we get the word uh, church from ecclesia is what called out means so he called you out the, the term church actually means brought out or called out and set apart so if you are a member of the church you are set apart In that sense, you're a special people, chosen generation. But the process of sanctification, of walking in holiness, that's a continual process. And that's why Hebrews 10 says that he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So there is a sanctified in that you were set apart when you got saved. And then there's walking in that increasingly by growing in that holiness and obedience um, as you are being sanctified, as you continue continue to obey. Yes. Yep. Yep. In your lifestyle. Yes, microphone over here.
6: So, I've heard it um, said that, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So, sanctification um, is kind of the, the process of the Spirit of God stripping you down to nothing. Um, So there's nothing left but yourself. So you reach the point of death with Christ so that you're ready for death. And um, like, right, no friends, no father, no brother, no self-interest. You don't care about anything except for God. And that at that point, you're the condition, you're like at the condition for immediate sanctification from God. And so the process of sanctification is that stripping down to then you can be immediately sanctified so that your life would be free from anything um, except for that kind of persistent. um, You'll be free free from being determined and persistent toward anything except God. It's okay. a little different than what you were saying, so I wanted to kind of yeah, reconcile Yeah, it's like a different a take on bit. it. Yeah.
0: So, okay. I would reconcile that by saying the stripping down thing is accurate because there are plenty of verses where Jesus talked about, you know, you can't love your father and mother more than me. You have to be willing to forsake all that. You have to be my disciple. Um, you must take, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Those are all statements that have to do with what we have to let go. Right? So there's this peeling back of these layers, if you will. Then he says, put on the new man. There's putting off the old, putting on the new. So yes, part of the sanctification is not just what you add, but also what you get rid of, what you, what you shed, if you will, what you leave, what you remove from your life. But the entire process of sanctification, I would say includes both. you Sanctification is, uh, yes, about what you put off, and yes, what you put on. And the. I would just refer to that whole process as being altogether what sanctification is about. I guess if that makes sense. That would be how I'd answer that. Yeah.
6: So there's not, you're saying, Scripture doesn't say there's like a moment of sanctification, like where you get to that point and God says
0: well the mo the moment would be like when you get saved, that's the moment where you're you're set apart
4: sure
0: yeah, so that would be there's that sanctification moment, but even before that moment comes, you do have to have a certain measure of being willing to give up everything else because Jesus and fe- Jesus himself said that he who loves Father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, so you can't you can't even be counted worthy to be saved if you're still Loving something more than him. You have to be willing to let things go in order to receive Christ. So that, what's that? New wine. The new wineskin? Sure, yeah. That, I wouldn't have used that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. There's a connection there.
2: Like the
0: rich, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's okay. No, the new wineskin is just, you have to, you can't put old, can't put new wine into old wineskins. You can't keep an old way of thinking and then try to have a new life in Christ. So, yes, there's a connection there. But point point is that in order to even get saved, there is a certain degree of letting go before that can even happen. But that moment you are saved is the moment you're set apart and then the the remainder of your life of becoming or walking in greater holiness is also continued. Sanctification, progressive. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, as a reminder, we have to make sure we always stay mindful of this. This is the next point. Your works don't save you. You are not saved by your works. What makes you saved is the fact that you have the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are not His. That's what Romans 8 says. What makes you saved, what makes you a child of God, is the fact that He gave you His Spirit. Period. That's what seals you. You are sealed or like locked in for salvation and the day of redemption because of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes you saved. Your works don't save you. Your works, or in other words, the sanctification, is about that Holy Spirit empowering you in this life to walk in a way that is fitting or appropriate for who you are in Christ. Which is that, for example, Philippians 3, 20 says your your citizenship is in heaven. If you're saved, you're a citizen of heaven. You have legal citizenship in the kingdom of God if you're saved. Now, if that's who you are truly, then the way that you honor that is by walking as a citizen of heaven would now. Living in a way that's fitting for what you've been called into, right? But the works that you do don't save you. It's your faith and the spirit of God in you. That's what saves you. But if you have that faith and if you have the spirit, you will be caused to be sanctified. You'll be caused to walk in greater repentance and obedience. And that's why in Colossians, I believe it's 1, so 21, we, I, we read this verse where it says, You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you wholly blameless and above reproach in his sight, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. So it says, You stay holy, blameless, and above reproach if you stay in your faith, not if you stay in your works. Because you have to stay in faith to stay saved. But if you start to rely on your works, now you're drifting away from faith. That's dangerous. That's what Galatians talks about. The whole epistle of Galatians is about people starting to rest their confidence on works of the law rather than faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's why we have to stay focused on the fact that faith is what saves us, not our works. And you are saved because you have the spirit. Next point here. I mentioned this earlier. I'm just going to reiterate it. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus said, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember Romans eight, verse 10, the body is dead because of sin. Your body's fallen. Your flesh is fallen. It will stay fallen. Your flesh will stay weak. But if you have the spirit and you know the word, you have the power and the know-how to repent, to obey, and not be led astray by the flesh. The flesh is weak. It will remain weak. But the more you continue to repent and obey the word, the easier it will become to resist the temptations of the flesh. So the more you progress in repentance, the easier it will become to continue repenting. And this is why in Colossians three, it tells us to mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. And the only way you can do that is by starving it. In other words, you set your mind on the word, you focus on the word you continue to take action, you're feeding the spirit and starving the flesh. But the more you give in to the flesh, the more power you give it. The more you give in to the spirit, the more power you will be walking in to walk in the spirit or to walk in obedience. So we have to maintain progress if we want repentance to be easier. If you think repentance is hard, it's only because you haven't been repenting very much. But if you continue to repent, it gets easier. Amen? So, this means, this is the last point. A main focus in our lives should be to uphold this earthly body in accordance with the kingdom. In other words, or this means... We use the word and the spirit to learn how to live as Jesus lived. Jesus was a perfect example of what it means to walk in an earthly body as a citizen of God's kingdom. Jesus lived that out perfectly. So us upholding this earthly body in accordance with the kingdom means carrying or as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, possessing this earthly vessel, owning it, walking in it, in this, in your body right now, in a way that is honorable, in the way that is heaven-like, in a way that is Christ-like. That's how we live ultimately as Jesus did. That's how we live successfully as a follower of Christ. And uh, 1 John chapter 3 says now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we will be unashamed before him at his coming. Uh, I'm actually, I want to read that one right out of the out of the text too, just so we can get the full context as well. 1 John 3, uh, verse 3, we're going to start in verse 2. 1 John 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Then look at a few verses earlier, chapter 2, verse 28. This is right before he gets into chapter 3. I misquoted the reference, but it's, it's two, twenty eight says now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Then he gets into him being revealed. I love verse three of chapter three. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Fewer words. That's John's way of saying, if you know you're going to be like Jesus when you get to heaven, you want to be like him now also. That's his, that's his whole point. In other words, what makes you think you want heaven if you're not wanting to live like it now? Basically, you're going to be like Jesus in heaven. And this is super convicting for me. I think about this very often. If I choose to sin, I consciously choose to sin on anything. And every time you sin, we choose to. You're basically saying, I'd rather live in sin than in heaven. You're basically saying that doing things in a sinful way is better than doing things the way they're done in heaven. Now, we wouldn't want to consciously think that. Like, that sounds terrible to say that, but that's what we're doing. Because the whole point is we're going to be like Jesus when we get to heaven. So if we want that, if we truly believe for that and we want that, we'll want to live like it now. And he says that that abiding in him, that staying in that mindset, continuing to grow in that obedience, that will give you confidence and help you be unashamed when he comes. Which also implies that there's probably going to be some people who are lacking confidence and who are ashamed when he comes because they will know, man, I haven't been... Living in a way that was very appropriate for what it meant to be a citizen of heaven. So we can take actions that will help us be unashamed when he returns. So I'll just restate the point. To use the word and the spirit to learn how to live as Jesus lived. That is upholding this earthly body in accordance with the kingdom. What I just said, say it again. Use the word and the spirit to learn how to live as Jesus lived. Which is upholding this earthly body in accordance with the kingdom. Did you have a comment, RJ?
4: I did. (coughs) It was about repentance. Yeah. Um, Before the first time I repented, I didn't want to repent because I was admitting something to myself that I wasn't doing anything wrong. When I started to repent, I started to realize, and my heart started to change, that I was doing some things not for Christ, Mm -hmm. and the more I have been repenting, the more things have been brought to my remembrance on my own or through the spirit that I've repented about and so repentance is now a part of my daily life
0: mhm it should be yeah daily yeah yeah one of the most important commitments actually I would say it this way the commitment to Jesus is the commitment to repentance because When you look at, well, this is one of my favorite verses that expresses this in Philippians 3. If you start in verse 20, so I already mentioned verse 20, where it says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Then it says, From which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then it says, Who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So let's keep that on the screen for a little while. Transform your body, conform it to his. So make your body just like the body he has now. According to the working, or He's here's what he's going to accomplish, to subdue all things to himself. So in other words, he's making everything about you like him. That's the point. Our job here is to... Start that process now. In other words, the more you repent, you're subduing more of yourself to be more like him. So then when he appears, he's going to complete that process. He'll finish the job by giving you a new body. But we start that now. And that's what repentance and sanctification is about. So your commitment to Christ is the commitment to repentance. Because what you're saying is, I want to be like Jesus and you can begin that process of being like him. Now we have the spirit to empower that we have the word to give us the knowledge of how to do it. And if we commit to that, that's going to be a joyful life. It's going to be a peaceful life. It's going to be a successful and prosperous life as a believer. Amen.
2: So just like we're never supposed to grow weary and well doing, we're never supposed to grow weary in our repentance because it's just an ongoing thing mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. And, and not feel, I mean, I, frankly, I, sometimes I feel like, Lord, I have brought this up to you so many times. I have repented for this multiple times. But it's our only way out. Yeah. There's no other answer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One thing I noticed what you said there, Kevin, I want to just make sure this is clarified to everyone on what repentance means. Because that needs to be clear. Repentance. Is not. When you confess that you've done something wrong. And then feel remorseful about it. That's confession and remorse. Repentance. Is when you change. It's the, the turning away. Taking on a new behavior. That's what repentance is. The remorse or the godly sorrow. Is designed to lead. To repentance. But they're not one in the same. So. Make sure, if you're talking about repentance, you're teaching other people about repentance, you're talking about it with others, make sure you help a person understand, or even for your own understanding, that if we have remorse or godly sorrow, that's good, but it leads to repentance, which is the actual change of behavior. So we actually haven't repented of something until we have changed. That's what repentance is. There should be evidence. Yes, Sue, get your microphone
1: how how do we explain first John 1 9 then
0: if you confess your sins he's faithful and just to forgive you yeah. so let's let's just go there real quick you got to read verses eight and 10 in order to get the full context first John chapter 1 starting verse 8 it says If we say that we have no sin Oh, I lost it. Ah, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, do you get forgiven for your sins once or continually? Once. You're forgiven every sin once. Colossians chapter 3, if you start in verse 9, I believe it's verse 9. No, it's not verse 9. It's in chapter 3, though. (laughs) Colossians 3 says to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Ephesians 4 uh, Verse twenty-four, or excuse me, twenty-nine, where he says, "Put, uh, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers." And then it says, "Put off all these bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, all evil speaking, be put away from you with, with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you." Past tense. You were forgiven once for your sins. So 1 John 1, 8 and 9 is not talking about you have to confess every time you sin to God so you can get forgiven. What it's talking about is when you come to Christ initially, if you say you have no sin, you're deceived. And of course, you can't even be forgiven if you don't believe you have sin. So you come to Christ admitting that you're a sinner. There's a confession. Then... You're in the place where he is to you, faithful and just to forgive you of all sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That verse, that passage is talking about when you first get saved. It's not talking about every single time you sin, you have to confess it to get forgiven. Otherwise, that would contradict other scriptures which say that you have been forgiven. Now, is confessing your sins one to another still a good practice as a believer? Yes. Because it helps you stay honest, stay vulnerable, helps you be corrected, helps you repent. But you don't have to keep confessing every sin in order for God to forgive you. If you read verse 10, it finishes by saying, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Looking in your past. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Looking in your past, if you say you have no sin, that makes you a liar. When you come to Christ, you have to admit to being a sinner. You get saved by confessing your sins and repenting and he forgives you. Looking back after you're saved, we have to say that we have sinned. If we don't confess that, then that means we are a liar. That's what that's trying to say. Does that answer the question, Sue? Yep. Okay. Any more questions or comments about any of this? I want to make sure there's no confusion. Yeah.
5: So in Romans 7, he says, It's no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. So our body, we're, our spirit man is born again, and that's that hidden person of the heart, where it says he cannot sin, in First John, I think. Right. So the spirit man's pure; he can't sin. So this at withdrawing at Christ's appearing or being ashamed would be in our mind, right?
0: You could say that. Yeah. Yeah. I would add that... Did you have more to say?
5: Well, so putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit is our mind getting transformed by the word of God. Yes. Yep. So, the, so the sin not being him is the real us is the spirit, which is pure. That's the real us. Can't this sin.
0: Okay. There's like five points there that could become <laughs> a whole sermon. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, sermon. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll try to keep this short. But sin that dwells in you, as as a believer, still applies because the body is dead because of sin. If your mind isn't fully renewed, you still have sin in your mind also. So, but the point is, as a born again believer, you're not identified by sin anymore. Before you're saved, the Bible says you are a sinner, you are darkness, you are a child of wrath by nature. Your your identity is like intrinsically attached to the fact of sin. Once you're a believer, you're now a child of God. That's your identity. And so as a believer, you can say, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Because if your heart has been changed, you're not sinning out of the malicious intent to do evil, you're sinning out of weakness that you despise. And that's Paul's point in Romans seven. I don't like being a sinner. I don't, I don't like sinning. I don't like being weak because I know that I was made for more, right? That, that feeling of that regret, if you will, is what Paul is talking about. So he's saying, understand, it's not you doing it. It's the weakness in your mind and body. And he's trying to teach people to disconnect from this identity of sin because it's not who you are. You're a child of God. You're born again, right? Otherwise, if you stay stuck in that, I'm a filthy sinner, and that's all you dwell on, it's all you think about, you start identifying by sin, that produces death. That's going to really wreck your life and wreck your beliefs if you stay there. So that's what I would say to that. Um, but yes, your spirit's perfect. Your spirit can't sin. Um, but that would be the one thing I would focus on. Was Does that answer that?
5: Yeah, and he also says, I'm seeing a different law at work in the members of my body. So he was, we're supposed to have, he who fixes his hope on him purifies himself, you quoted. So he had his eyes on sin. And so he was like pulled into sin to the point where it made wage war against his mind and left him wretched. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The... Yeah, that's accurate. What you fix your mind on is really important. I think is to what your point is, you can't fix your mind on sin. Fix your mind on the word and on the spirit. Um, I do have a question just to make sure this is clear to everyone. What one, one of the main things I want this to solve for anyone is if there's any discouragement about still having weakness. Because... This is a really important thing to address because part of the point, which is what we were getting at earlier, part of the point of having this weakness is because facing it with the word and the spirit and overcoming it is how we learn obedience. Right. There's a Job 17, I think it's like verse nine says, the righteous only grow stronger and stronger. But the way to grow stronger is obviously to, like in weightlifting, you have to be weak at a certain point. And that weakness challenging you is what allows you to grow stronger. So make sure that, I want to make sure nobody's discouraged because the fact that we have to face weakness is what allows us to grow stronger and what allows us to learn obedience. We do that with the word. We do that with the spirit. And that's part of life. And if we stay in that process, it'll help us to be confident, unashamed when Christ returns. Because we know that we were abiding in him. Amen? Any last questions, comments? Okay. Awesome. All right. We will pray to close as a group, as usual. And then we'll uh, get into offering after that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want, I can just show you the outline later. Unless... Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we'll we'll pray um, as usual. I'll just start, and
2: then whoever.